like scary movies? Uh-huh. I'm getting ready to watch a video. You making popcorn? Uh-huh. What's, what's, what's your favorite? Uh, I don't know. You have to have a favorite. Talk to me. Talk, talk to me. Hi, everybody. I'm George, and welcome to the best little horror house in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is the author of the combination book-slash-time-capsule land party celebrating the multiplayer trend and its participants, which releases tomorrow. She's also a writer of fiction, a podcaster, a game designer, and a potential victim of the Gemini killer with that initial. Please welcome Merritt Kay. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah. Hi. Thanks for having me. And uh, thanks for putting that into my mind. I, uh... (laughs) Yeah. Happy to have you here. Yes. Uh, it occurred to me as I was watching that there was quite a focus on the letter K in this movie. There is. There is. But before we get into today's movie, why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with horror in general? It's kind of funny because horror is probably my favorite genre at this point, but I didn't get into it until about five years ago, maybe four years ago. I was a very scared child. I was like very... uh hesitant to watch anything that would be at all suspenseful or frightening i think i i think i saw alien very young and that um really really upset me (laughs) probably one of the worst movies you can see too early and uh yeah i don't know just even anything with any kind of suspense was too much for me so i kept my eyes shut through most of silence of the lambs when i watched that when i was a teen I just, I couldn't deal with gore. I couldn't deal with the jump scares. I couldn't deal with even, you know, creepy music. And then, you know, like four or five years ago, my friend Danielle, who is a big horror uh, aficionado, big film person generally, she teaches film actually, you know, we started getting together to watch a movie every week and she would be like, hey, how about like a horror movie? And I was just like, I don't, that's not really my thing. But we started with kind of some of the more schlocky 80s movies. So like, you know, we went through Nightmare on Elm Street and Reanimator and a bunch of things like that. And I started to kind of get into it. And then that kind of expanded from there. I, I think like backwards in time, I was getting more into 70s, 60s stuff and forward as well a little bit. I will say I still don't watch a ton of new first run horror movies, but I also just mm-hmm. don't watch a ton of new first run movies in general. <laughs> I right. tend to be much more of like, a oh, what's on to be or criterion right now (laughs) that i can dig into because i didn't even really watch a lot of movies at all for most of my life so i feel like i am still kind of making up for lost time and building up my familiarity with film hell yeah well to be as we know the people's streamer uh, you'll find a lot of gems on there it's like (laughs) so weirdly good i don't know (laughs) it's really strange well, I'm definitely curious about the next question then, which is, do you have a preferred subgenre, something that's more likely to get you into it, something that really draws you to a horror movie? Yeah, I mean, uh, usually if something has vampires in it, I will be more willing to give it a shot. You know, I like the classic monsters. I like treatments of, of I mean, when I say classic, I mean like universal, right? So like I like approaches to vampires or like Wolfman or whatever. Right. And that can be really broad too. Like I watched the movie Ravenous recently which is sort of a vampire movie, but not really. And that was really, really fun. So yeah, I like sort of the monster movies where it's more of like a monster in human form, right? Less of a a thing lurking like in the night ready to jump on you. But uh, I love, you know, a lot of the uh, the like Italian vampire movies where you go to someone, 
someone's weird house and uh, you meet them and you're like, wow, this old countess is kind of strange. And then it turns out that she's it's probably fine. Kill- yeah, no, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Everything's fine. Um, but that's, you know, I love uh, like that specific subgenre, I guess, like that kind of Italian uh, horror, some giallo stuff. Um, so, that yeah, gothic I mean, gothic energy. Yeah, like a gothic, like slow burn kind of thing is is really my my speed. But I also do like just a schlocky, like kind of goofy, bloody sort of mess as well. Hell yeah. Gotta have both. Gotta have both. It's all about balance, right? Yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. Well, that fits perfectly for today's movie as well. Speaking of, uh, you know, monsters in human form, because the movie we're talking about today is William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist 3, a fascinating piece of cinematic history, not only because of the quality of the movie overall, but also the parabolic nature of the Exorcist franchise that Mm. it facilitates. You know, so many people love The Exorcist, and they go, there's no way a follow-up to it could be good. And then- People watch the second one and they feel completely vindicated and they go, they're right. There's no way. Yeah. But then if you push through to three, it's not only incredible, but it captures the terror of the first one again without just being a carbon copy of it, which is the real difficult thing to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've actually never seen Exorcist 2 Heretic, but I have really, really no desire to. (laughs) I mean, it was a studio cash driven endeavor that Blatty had no involvement in. Right. The Exorcist 3. We can get into this later, but it would have been even less similar to the original movie had Blatty had his way. But it ends up being a little more similar. But even with the kind of history of meddling in that movie, I still think it is like the greatest horror movie of all time. And it might be my personal just favorite film of all time as well. Yeah, in the commentary, which I found really interesting, the moderator and Blatty spent a lot of time sort of front-porching their discussion of Exorcist 3 because of how intensely intertwined with The Exorcist 1 Blatty's life was and how it sort of led to this movie. There's a funny moment very early on where he talks about making a living as a screenwriter before The Exorcist. And it was like a down period because the shifting tastes of the market meant that comedy had dried up. Mm -hmm. And so he went down to the Van Nuys unemployment office and saw his agent three lines down and just thought, I'm fucked. (laughs) (laughs) Oof, yeah. Very close to home. But he's he's in the late 60s. He's at a party with a bigwig from Bantam Books who, quote, made the mistake of asking me what I was working on. And after hearing just a sketchy pitch, no plot or anything, the guy stuck out his hand and said, I'll publish that. But while Blatty could normally knock out a screenplay in six weeks maximum, he said, writing The Exorcist took nine months because of the change in style from his history Mm. as a comic novelist and comedy screenwriter. He described the work as not a smile to be found. (laughs) (laughs) I also loved, he, he said the opening line was, quote, the horror began on the night of April something, and then for six weeks he kept changing the date, just couldn't even get past that. Wow. The fact that he, I didn't really, I mean, I don't know much about him, I haven't read his his fiction but the fact that he comes from a comedy writing background makes a lot of this movie make a lot more sense yeah Yeah, all those kinderman lines i mean and also i mean i'll definitely talk about this but the doctor like looking at his notes mid-speech oh my god it's like the funniest thing i've ever seen (laughs) but he gets another screenwriting offer and he takes it and this fermenting time benefits the book as he comes back finishes fairly rapidly and Karis was a bit of a stand-in for Blatty, not only because of the crisis of faith, his own faith had vacillated wildly from lead choir boy to denial and back, but also he talked about the depressive denial of humanity, Mm. sort of embracing a bestial view of our nature as a shield, and related to that element of Karis as well. Yeah, I mean, 
he was pretty deep into Catholicism, right? I mean, he was like, and I think that's sometimes you'll see films that are about faith uh, and religion and they don't really, you can tell that the person isn't like a real psycho about it, (laughs) which I think makes them worse for it. But yeah, his, his personal experience and maybe even like overzealousness, uh, I think serves both of these movies really well. Definitely. And that is something that I find really interesting. I remember the first time that I watched Bad Lieutenant, like, Abel oh, Ferreira yeah. is also I was thinking Catholic. of him as well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, that movie just really fucking knocked my socks off. And I'm a little Jewish boy, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to church, but I was like, damn, this was a really effective movie with an A, in terms of, like, you know, the idea of self-forgiveness and trying to better yourself and what the point of no return is and everything. I just thought it was really good. And that Catholicism is steeped in it. Like, mm. it, it, it really represents it in a way that I also feel Blatty does. Absolutely, yeah. And I think with Ferreira, sometimes you see it, you see it coming through in varying degrees. I think it maybe is the least restrained in um, uh, his vampire movie, well, I haven't seen that one yet. It's uh, it it's called The Addiction. And it's. Right. I think it gets a little heavy handed, actually, because it's so obviously about the power of redemption <laughs> through Christ. And uh, mm-hmm. it has its moments. But um, I think it, you know, he, he sort of lost sight of his view as an artist and became more of just mm. advocate. Proselytizing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I see. I see. Well. Blatty also talked about a funny, embarrassing story while, during the writing of The Exorcist, where he drunkenly told his pal Shirley MacLaine, I'm gonna make you a star again. <laughs> <laughs> because she was the character, basically, because he wasn't used to writing women. So he said, okay, write what you know, my pal Shirley, even though the role did eventually go to Ellen Burstyn. So it didn't even actually do anything for Shirley. Mm, that's a shame. Yeah. I, hey, who I would have loved to get a uh, Shirley MacLaine revival yeah. from, from The Exorcist, but... There was famously a crazy reception for The Exorcist. It shocked and terrified audiences. Mm -hmm. So the book itself got a huge boost as well. Uh, The publisher told him they were shipping 25,000 copies every single day for a while. And Blatty said, is that good? (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) So, So the studio asked him to do a sequel, and his first instinct is absolutely not. Primarily because he simply didn't know where the story could go. But when they drove a truckload of cash up to his house, a, quote, dizzying amount, he signed the sequel rights over and we get The Exorcist 2. It is hard to blame him, though he definitely did hate it. And he said, quote, I don't know if all that money would really compensate for Richard Burton saying, I've flown this route before on the back of a giant grasshopper. Not sure how many millions it takes. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But he's a simple man. He had a, a family to provide for. So he said he doesn't regret it. Yeah, he no. just wishes the director had been a Catholic or a non-believer instead of a Protestant to more compatibly <laughs> engage with the material. Right, right. He keeps rolling the idea of a sequel around in his mind, though, especially with Billy the Freak Friedkin saying he was interested. And they start working on it until, quote, one night, Billy invited me over to his apartment in New York, and he cooked a roast for us, and he told me he didn't want anything to do with knives anymore. I don't know where knives came into Legion, but he pulled back. <laughs> wow. I mean, Friedkin also, yeah, obviously another greedy, like, freak. Yeah. But also just, you know, an incredible artistic force, but, <laughs> you know, making decisions that he uh, 
that probably he should have been stopped from making uh, in in the, a lot of his his filmmaking, but like kind of selfishly, I'm, I'm grateful that he was allowed to do those things. Right. Yeah. All those little foibles that give it the distinction and character that they have. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, wow. And uh, I think uh, someone else was supposed to be involved in Exorcist 3 as well at some point. I was supposed to direct it. Yes, they did reach out to John Carpenter, of all people. Yes, yeah. Pretty wild. They said that they were ultimately incompatible in the vision, as you know, as you alluded to. Blatty did not want there to be an exorcism in The Exorcist. Right. And Carpenter was definitely pushing for that. He envisioned all kinds of crazy new effects and everything. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, he was like, I think Blatty just really wants to do this himself and kind of backed away from it. Right. Yeah. (laughs) That would have been a very different movie, yeah. Definitely. And he was right. Blatty says, fine, I'll do it myself. So after much research at the Library of Congress, it's now years later in 1983, he he releases this book, Legion. It references the events of The Exorcist, but stands alone as well. And according to Blatty, the point was simply, there is a god. In the commentary, he goes more in depth on this, saying that while Karis was a reflection of his turmoil, he doesn't feel the despair of Kinderman, thanks to his overall faith, and specifically his belief that the imperfectness of this world is what gives us our nobility of overcoming, which earns our place in heaven. Mm. And so that's where he feels different than the lead character, uh, and it's less of a direct one-to-one representation of Blatty himself. That makes sense, yeah. I think a lesser director or writer would have treated that character as more of a contemptible figure. And, you know, yes, it's, you know, it's a movie where ultimately the the non-theist, the unbeliever, the cynic is shown the error of his ways. But it's done in a way that feels compassionate towards that character and that feels realistic and earned rather than you know, sort of beating him over the head with like, you idiot, you fool. How could you not know that God is real and loves you, you dipshit? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's you know, very slow and builds to that. So I feel like it earns right. it rather than feeling cheap. He also described the reasoning behind Kinderman being the protagonist for Legion is that even in the original Exorcist, Kinderman was the character Blatty enjoyed writing because mm. he could give him jokes. Right. And so that was that comedic, uh, <laughs> you know, persistence coming through. Right. Regarding the movies, Blatty did discuss preferring the original Kinderman, Lee Cobb, to George C. Scott, who was actually an atheist in real life, which he Mm -hmm. said he thought impacted the performance. And I have to say, you know, all respect to Mr. Blatty, I disagree with this. I really love George as our audience surrogate. He has this toughness that makes it really believable that he could handle the constant body blows of the plot. I think he just really nails it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, George C. Scott is just kind of firing in all cylinders here. I mean, he was an incredible actor as well. He was a stage actor as well as a screen actor. And director as well. He was a director as well and a producer. And, you know, I mean, he did like a lot. Obviously, you know, Dr. Strangelove, probably one of his most well-known roles aside from this movie. But he really pulls off this world-weary yet still very engaged and you know he's a man who has seen the worst of the world he's been a police officer for you know however long decades he he's just seen gruesome murders he's seen just horrible things but he still has this warmth to him and obviously this tremendous sense of humor and also he is like it's which is kind of unusual for a police officer character 
in in film he's very literary which is i feel yeah. like that's bloody coming through as well uh he's constantly <laughs> making references allusions and uh it's just this interesting mix of qualities that really make him feel real that are brought to life by scott's performance I totally agree. I, I think that he does distinguish himself from just being the typical lieutenant character. He's much more than that. He has adepts to him. So with no Friedkin, they're unable to agree with any of the other director's visions. Blatty does take the reins to direct it himself, something that scares studios, especially in tandem with the lingering smell of The Exorcist 2, which leads to a tough time actually getting it made, with six years between publishing and the production of the movie. And it was even briefly called Exorcist 1990, to avoid having to be like, yes, this is the sequel to Exorcist 2. <laughs> Blatty said, quote, Exorcist 1990 is what I find terrifying, which are creaks and shadows and what your own imagination brings to the subject, rather than spinning heads and all the mm. rest, which I know have their place, but not in this film. Yeah, I mean, it's a very different approach. There are gruesome imagery in this movie, and there is sho extremely shocking imagery, I would argue more shocking than the, the first Exorcist. But it takes a while to get to it, and it's much more of a climax after a long, long buildup of, yeah, these like sounds in the dark, and most of the really horrific stuff in this movie, at least in the first two-thirds, happens off-screen. Yeah, and I do find it funny that it does still have this like oppressive darkness to it that I think is very good, but this is like the sanitized version of it. Blatty is like, oh yeah, I pulled the heavy stuff out of the script mm. when I translated it from the book. I didn't have time to read the book, which I was a little sad about, but I'm definitely interested in it. The library, I'm on hold, I'm on the list. So, <laughs> But Blatty brings in a few collaborators from his previous directorial effort, The Ninth Configuration, like Jerry Fisher, the DP. Uh, Blatty described himself as smitten all the way back to 1969's Black and White Hamlet, but especially once he saw the color work. I just think that he does a good job of capturing the difference of what The Exorcist 3 is compared to The Exorcist, for sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's it feels like much more... The action spills out, I feel like, much more than the first movie. Mm -hmm. You know, there is sort of the similar space of this enclosed area in the first movie. Obviously, it's it's Reagan's bedroom. And in this film, it's the, the confinement cell where, uh, where Patient X is and... Um, so there are there's like echoes of the first movie visually, but it is I feel like it takes you much more around and out into the world than the uh, the first one did. Definitely. And Leslie Dilly, who's the production designer, also had a lot to do with this. He said the sets I build are to create atmosphere as much as to be looked at. Mm. And that is very much deliberate. Blatty wanted to create the same fear and expectation through discussion and characterization instead of scares. Right. 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 So. They do wind up having to do massive reshoots, $4 million worth, when two things occur. Mm. One, the studio demands that an exorcism be in the movie, basically. Right. And I think I saw, <laughs> I think I saw that that came from like one of the executive's assistants or secretary or something who said, like, right. oh, there isn't an exorcism in this movie. It's not an exorcist movie. Like, what's going on? And uh, so, yeah, they demand, you know, they're like, we, we you got to have. It's called The Exorcism. It's called The Exorcist. You've got to have an exorcism, you know? 
And on top of that, Jason Miller becomes available. He had not been when they were casting originally and also was a pretty severe alcoholic and he couldn't really do the role. And so what they did instead was combine the villain roles into Patient X and introduce the role of Father Morning to combat the demon through exorcism. Right. Which is funny because you see this character and it's when you know that that character was added later, it becomes so obvious because for the first (laughs) half of the movie, he isn't interacting with anyone else. It's only in that final scene where he actually is in the same room with Patient X or with uh, Kinderman. It's, it's, he's totally this external force who kind of just shows up for no real reason. Uh, Hey, he felt it coming. He he (laughs) saw the bird. He said, I'm ready. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Miller's entry necessitates the overriding of of some of the incredible Brad Dorif performance as the Gemini Killer to Blatty's chagrin and Dorif's, to be honest. Mm. He talked about feeling like his new takes weren't as good as the original footage that they had, yeah. uh, and that he he wishes that they had sort of just left it alone, but understood, obviously, that Blatty had no choice in this matter, so. But I've got to say, like, if the, this is what Brad Dorif thinks is, like, a bad performance or movie, <laughs> like... <laughs> Like, that's just like insane to me, because it's a, you know, it's, you know, a fantastic uh, project altogether. But B, his performance in this is like one of the all time horror performances for me. Like it's horror villain stuff goes, it's just off the charts. And for him to be like, they're oh actually, it was better originally. It's like, Oh my God. Well, I would love to see that, but also like maybe you're being a little too hard on yourself. <laughs> yes. He did say he doesn't like to watch his own performances. So who knows? Right, maybe he's, yeah. uh, he's, he's tainted in his memory here. Blatty loves Brad. He said that he saw him in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and thought he'd be perfect for for playing someone evil because he doesn't necessarily look evil. Mm. And Dorif himself discussed playing uh, the, the Gemini killer very human. Uh, the desire for revenge uh, oozes off of him. I, it really is just phenomenal. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it's it's great. Yeah. Yeah. The movie itself, unfortunately, did not do great at the box office, at least not nearly as well as they'd hoped. It made $44 million worldwide on this now $15 million budget after accounting for the reshoots. There, critics mostly didn't care for it and its literary nature. There were a few who recognized the craft, though. Vincent Canby of the New York Times did prefer this to the original, he said, and Life Magazine called it one of the best movies of the decade, and here we are, declaring it to be the best horror movie ever made. So, (laughs) we caught up to it. (laughs) So, let's talk about the actual movie. We open in Georgetown, 1990. Father Damien Karras is mourned after the events of the first movie, both by Lieutenant Kinderman at home and Father Dyer, who gazes sadly down the famous stairs that Karras died on. These stairs are extremely creepy. You know, I rewatched the first one as well, and I thought, man, they really do a good job of just imbuing this section of stairs with menace in a way that is really incredible. And that does carry over into this, even just looking yeah, at it. I feel like no set of stairs would come close to this level of uh, cinematic notoriety until Joker, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> like, Yeah, right. Imagine him dancing his way down these stairs, right? He's, well, I mean, uh, he'd break his neck. It's too scary. Couldn't do it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he could be a regular carrot. <laughs> the spooky fog rolls in across town, and the camera enters a church where the statues seem to be waiting for something. They're petrified in fear, not just carved that way. I thought they did such an awesome job of personifying these statues through the camera. Mm. 
and the door bursts open with a growling voice calling for the preacher and a huge gale of wind and the crucified Jesus's eyes fly open, which is very unsettling to start with. There's a funny story where they had a SFX crew firing roses and pages into the air, and then when they went to do another take, they suddenly found that the studio hadn't and wouldn't pay for more roses. And so one of the producers was like, that's okay, we'll scour the cemeteries if we have to. <laughs> Love that. The camera, though, heads outside, and the eerie atmosphere persists, thanks to our first-person perspective, complete with heavy breathing and bobbing around. Also very effective. The only other people on the street are a man draped in shadow who runs across the street and a very young boy tucked into a, a gap of a building. Mm. And he's wearing a shirt that says Police Boys Club and holding a rose, a motif quickly established as there was one in the church too in a cup of blood. Suddenly and impossibly, he's in front of us again, stepping out from the corner to offer the rose before we're tumbling over and over down these dang stairs. They talked about how difficult shooting this was <laughs> yeah. right. in the commentary. They said that the guy who went down with the camera accidentally, like, bumped the camera at the end, and they had to be like, uh, could you do it a second time, please? <laughs> <laughs> Voiceover lets us know that this was a dream, though, as some helicopters fly overhead and Father Dyer finishes his sermon to an empty church. Turns out these helicopters are going to a crime scene where a body has washed ashore, the body of the young boy that we saw. I do think that there is an interesting juxtaposition where the abandonment of religion could be read as reflecting a lack of morals among the population to Blatty. I do think that that's mm. what he's trying to connect there. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And the 15-year anniversary of Father Karras's death weighs heavy on his mind. He shoes out an inquisitive altar boy who mentions that you hear all kinds of stories, and he's in trouble with a superior after telling one of their largest donors, Jesus loves you, but everyone else thinks you're an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> so good. We also see his love of movies here, a triplicate connection point between Karis, Dyer, and Kinderman. Mm. And today, he and Kinderman are going to see It's a Wonderful Life, each claiming they're doing it to cheer the other one up, which is very cute. I love that. It's so good. It's like just such a great starting point for the relationship between mm -hmm. these characters. You know, obviously, they're both in the first movie, but this is, we don't really get much of that relationship there. So this is the start of it and uh this idea that these two older guys are like uh oh, he always gets depressed this time of year i gotta go take him to the movie like it's uh it's a great way to to introduce both of them totally agree dyer also mentions that he's seen it 37 times which the other priest dryly says is commendable and then he says that his favorite movie is the fly which really <laughs> fucking cracks me up great delivery yeah, I also kind of wonder if ha him having seen It's a Wonderful Life so many times is a kind of sly reference to Beetlejuice. Mm, interesting. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but there's a scene in the Be in Beetlejuice where Beetlejuice says, I've seen The Exorcist about 167 times and it keeps getting funnier every time I see it. Oh, <laughs> like, probably not. But, uh, you know, that movie was two years before this, so it's possible. Hey, I I'm, I'm willing to believe it. I'm co-signing this theory. Okay. <laughs> Kinderman himself is lecturing someone about Macbeth's theme regarding the numbing of the moral sense, which is, of course, a little metatextual irony here, as we've already connected this movie to that theme as well. He feels abandoned by God and sees that in the lack of care from his fellow cops, who he does straight up accuse of being racist, which I very greatly appreciated. <laughs> and he has this great line, too, about, he's like, oh, on the police entrance exam, there's a question that says, what is rabies and what would you do for it? He's like, and this guy said, rabies are Jewish priests, and I would do anything that they needed me to. 
Perfect. So good. So good. He wants the files on the Gemini killer who supposedly died 15 years ago, but there's a symbol on the palm of the victim that connects the cases. And he sends the others home to spend time with their families. He does the same. Very much a recharging effort. It's clear that he's exhausted and wondering what effect he's having as he tells his wife that they finally managed to catch the scourge of the city who was breaking into people's houses to redecorate. <laughs> um, very fun detail. I like that. Uh, it's a little, <laughs> that's the case that's, that they're solving there. Gosh. We also get a few more fun details at the movies uh, that I think do help to flesh them out, like Kinderman flashing his badge and saying official business to get in, and Father Dyer being unable to go in without concessions because he's a lemonhead junkie. Right. God, perfect. In these first few scenes with the two of them, there's so much dialogue packed in. There's so many throwaway lines and Mm -hmm. jokes that are just so great. Dyer's like, for the time I've been waiting here, four new popes have been elected. That's a lot of white smoke. (laughs) You know, and he says, he's talking about the lemon drops. I, you know, I spent a year hearing children's confessions and, you know, I became a <laughs> lemon drop junkie, you know, smelling them on their breath between that and the weed. I think yeah. they're more addictive. Like, <laughs> God, it's just so dense. It's great. So much fun. Yeah. Yeah. Even, even uh, the next joke is uh, Kinderman can't go home because there's a giant carp swimming in his bathtub for the, the last three fucking days. carp. <laughs> I totally forgot it. But so I, the last time I saw this movie, I mean, I watched it today. But prior to that, I think it was like three years ago. And I completely forgot about the carp. There's this huge, like, like two minute long dialogue sequence where George C. Scott is getting right up in, uh, uh, what's his name? Ed, Ed Kramer, uh, his face. And Flanders, Ed Flanders. Flanders, Ed Flanders' face. And it's just like, I can't go home because of the carp. <laughs> My mother-in-law is here. And she's going to cook carp i got nothing against the fish it's a good fish but because of the impurities she buys it live it's swimming around to my bathtub and it's like what where is this going and the answer is it's going nowhere he just is telling this insane story that has like nothing to do with anything and it's beautiful it's wonderful and it's like yeah not every little bit of dialogue has to you know tie into the the broader plot or anything it's just and the mother-in-law character really you know, doesn't do anything in the movie. She's just there, but it works. And the carp is she's cooking just, carp. She's cooking carp. It's great. It's fantastic. It is great. This was also a true story that Blatty was going through, and he had to talk Scott into doing it because George didn't see the humor, which is crazy <laughs> to me. Between this and Dr. Strangelove, I can't believe that they are just constantly having to trick this guy into the best comedic performances. It's so good. So they go grab dinner instead, and they talk theology. The whole world is God's murder victim because a God who was good would never invent death. It's a lousy idea, not popular. Honestly, one could just quote this whole segment because the back and forth is delightful, but this conversation definitely ties to Blatty's statement that the search for God is actually searching for validation of our own immortality as a defense against the fear of death. Mm. Whoa. (laughs) It does lead, though, to discussing the victim that they found, Thomas Kintry. 12 years old, an ingot driven through each eye before decapitation. In place of his head was the head of a Jesus statue painted in blackface, and then he was crucified on some rowing oars, which is not a fun description. (laughs) Yeah, really, really upsetting. We next see a confession. This little old lady walks in, but as we stay in the priest section of the confessional, we see simply a void 
as the reedy voice recounts the first 17 murders and cackles before a cut, and the next family's weeping alerts us to the blood that indicates the priest's death. The blood is voluminous. Uh, it's a problem she has, all the bleeding, the, the voice said. Oh, right, which leads, uh, sets up something later on, which I, I didn't realize the first yeah. time I watched this movie, yeah. obviously, but... Yeah, it is kind of a subtle, a subtler setup to be like, oh, that this fascination with blood and like what to do with it is is a, a trait of this killer mm-hmm. that does persist. Kinderman is disturbed once again, though, both at the crime and the laziness of his peers. This is just the start, though, because he also gets some news about the young boy. The autopsy showed that he actually died from slow asphyxiation after being paralyzed by drugs. He was conscious the whole time he was being butchered. Yeah, it just gets worse. It just gets worse and worse. Suddenly, Father Dyer is in the hospital. What the heck? One of my favorite moments in the movie is there's it's so tiny, but Kinderman is like literally running over to check on his friend. But then a few steps away, pauses and gathers himself to seem like he's cool and collected as he strolls in just going, what's this nonsense? Stuffed penguin in hand. It's perfect. Like the shot of from the hospital room looking out into the hallway and Kinderman stops. Yeah, just like steps before the doorway and it's just like, yeah, adjusting himself. It's it's great. And pretty cute stuffed penguin too. Good gift, Kinderman. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's good. I mean, we get more banter between them, you know, discussion about why he's there, like, oh, my brother Mike, my brother had the same thing, you know, and it's like your brother died at 30. And it's like, yeah, he was in Vietnam. <laughs> he's like, it could have been related. There's a great line here, too. He's he's reading like Women's Day, I think, or something. He's asking Kinderman, like, hey, can you just, can you pick me something up? And Kinderman just like, my God, the grammar. <laughs> like, because he ends uh, the sentence with a preposition. It's it's good. It's really good. It's like these two guys, you know, it's these two and there's probably a lot you could say or write about male friendships in this movie, just sort of discomfort that Kinderman has with like the stopping outside the room. And then, you know, he's like kind of giving him a hard time at first, but he also obviously really cares about him. It's great. I mean, I, I think that that re- like that relationship is the core of at least the first half of this movie. And it's it's done wonderfully. I totally agree. I think that they do such a great job of establishing that and really making you care about both of them. So that ultimately, when, spoiler alert for coming up in our conversation, when Dyer dies, it feels that much more impactful, not only because we cared about Dyer, but because we care about Kinderman and know how much this is affecting him. Right, right, yeah. The rose motif does reemerge with a single rose by Dyer's bed, indicating all along that he has been marked for death. So, you know, you do sort of see it Mm. coming. And Kinderman does snap at Dyer's lack of concern, and he stalks out. But as we follow him, we see the decapitated Jesus statue. Kinderman is hearing the autopsy of the priest now, again paralyzed, again in precise dosage. And they found a fingerprint, which he's stoked about. After all, it's the same as the prince from the Oars Crucifix, isn't it? And slowly, these other two cops shake their head. Two different killers? What the heck? Mm -hmm. At home... He has a fitful dream, Kinderman does, uh, has a fitful dream of falling objects and an intensely surreal train station version of Purgatory. Uh, Fabio is there. So is Thomas Kintry, the little boy. (laughs) Samuel L. Jackson. Sam Jackson is there. Yeah. His voice is dubbed over for some reason. (laughs) Nick's icon, Patrick Ewing, dear friend of Blatty's and an angel Mm -hmm. in this movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just like a bunch of 
weird little celebs in this scene. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the path Kinderman takes leads, surprisingly, to Dyer, sporting the same stitched-up neck as Thomas. I wonder if we're both dreaming this, Kinderman remarks idly. No, Bill. I'm not dreaming, says Dyer. Ooh, powerful line. Mm. This scene peaks in a frenzy, and Kinderman wakes up the next morning to a phone call. Dyer is true to his name, and in a gruesome fashion, every drop of blood has been drained from the body and is put neatly in cups on the table nearby, not even a smudge on the jars. What a way to sort of, like, be with Kinderman as he finds out about this and us not really know what the jars are either, but to see them there the whole time and be wondering when they're going to explain it. And when that shoe drops, so does your stomach. It's just so intense, so good. I love this scene. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah, and this is sort of the point. I mean, it was already kind of personal because uh, Kinderman knew uh, Kintry and you know, had been involved in the the Gemini killer case, but this is when it, it gets really personal, right? I mean, yeah, his best friend is is dead. And yeah, he's in a very bad place at this point. Definitely. One thing that you had sort of touched on, but that I find pretty interesting is that Dyer had mentioned his brother sharing the same symptoms as him, but it didn't matter because he was killed in Vietnam. Now here is Dyer also killed before the body could do it itself with both men in a situation caused by moral apathy. Mm. This is also not the first Vietnam illusion, as the helicopters over the river definitely felt like a war movie sort of calling back to that era. Oh, sure, yeah. Definitely feels like there is sort of an anti-Vietnam sentiment that does permeate the movie in an interesting way. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that would make sense, I think, yeah. Yeah. A shadow falls over the crucifix on the wall, the skies open up with rain, And there actually is some blood missing from the jars, because it was used to write on the wall in blood, it's a wonderful life, two L's, a deeply sick mocking game to this person to uh, be, be rubbing that in their face. Kinderman's interrogation of the nurse is really interesting to me. She seems almost amused by the whole thing, despite his being completely on edge. I think this is a really interesting, cool, and unnerving performance by Nancy Fish. It's such a weird decision that i think is so good it's really strange yeah i mean it's great it almost makes me wonder if this is meant to be sort of like a i don't know to sort of throw people off like a bit of a red herring of Mm -hmm. she just seems so obviously kind of suspicious or or (laughs) almost sinister it's very very odd in a lot of her scenes and it feels like it's trying to lead you into suspecting her especially because you know she's Mm -hmm. present in the hospital uh the whole time but right uh yeah i don't really know what to make of that used to dose (laughs) yeah right yes yeah the interrogation leads him to the neurology department though and as he walks in there's a, a strange interaction easily written off as just setting the tone of the area they're in where a dazed woman asks if kinderman is her son and he says he'd be proud to believe so, and she looks at him distrustingly before pulling away, saying, you're not my son. Mm. Now, where this gets strange is a demonic growling that happens in the mix as she says it. And it was confirmed by the closed captions that this is demonic growling. <laughs> I wondered what this might be indicating. And at one point, I had a tinfoil theory where she was like a stand-in for the Virgin Mary, now catatonic and abandoned. 
Uh, I kind of pulled away from that a little bit as wow. I thought about it more, but you know, it's, I like that there's something to chew on with this movie. I watched it three times in the last week and I'm still like, ah, how do I feel about these little moments? Like, what is this? Yeah. There's a lot like that. Yeah. So instead, Kinderman heads over to chat with Miss Clelia, who was found unconscious outside Dyer's room. She laments that nothing ever gets fixed around here, particularly her radio. She's holding it here, invisible, and picking up the voices of dead people. And Kinderman tries to trick her and say he's the radio repairman to get her to talk. But she flips it on his fucking ass. I love this. (laughs) It's so good because you're like, oh, that's kind of like, because she's like, can you see my radio? Uh, And he's like, yeah, I can see it. And she's like, that's not my radio. It's a phone. And it's like, that's great. (laughs) It's just, you think, because, you know, he's like, you know, kind of, he's trying to get information, but he's also just like decent, like earlier with like the woman's asking him, are you my son? But yeah, she flips it on him. It's, it's great. Yeah, I love that. She does fade back into a catatonic state, but not before saying that he has a kind face and he'll do well. Mm. Next up is the Disturbed Ward, a ward surely impossible to escape with the way that they have things set up. But he's called over by the voice saying his name, and the person inside is covered in shadow. We also can't hear Kinderman through the door once we pass onto the other side, which makes you wonder if he actually heard it. Or just felt it. There's a really interesting Mm. moment in the sound mix. Yeah, yeah. This shadowy figure recites Death Be Not Proud by John Donne as Kinderman is pulled away because Dr. Friedman is Dr. Freaking Out about being locked down. (laughs) (laughs) We get a little glimpse. It's Karis, or Patient X, as the voice morphs. Kinderman tries to calm the doctor by letting him in a bit on the tale of the Gemini killer and the lies that they told in an effort to filter out false confessions. I love this moment where Kinderman breaks down in tears, mm. and now despite the electric chair death of the killer, these new victims bear his calling cards, known only to the Richmond PD. Uh, the final one is the letter K starting the victim's name, like Father Joseph Kevin Dyer and Thomas Kintry. Mm-hmm. I also love this setup because Kinderman starts with K as well, and it really sort of puts a like oh, is he in danger too on the whole thing? Right. I I like that a lot. They do seem to be on the path of the murder weapon, which is a spring-loaded shear that conspicuously went missing not long ago, although to where, they don't know. And Kinderman has to consult the church on their religious connection, what the two murdered priests might have had in common. I love this really freaky moment where the grandfather clock stops ticking. In the immediate aftermath of that, a lot of other creepy stuff happens, right? The creaking door, floating paper, whispers in Latin, and ghostly girl giggles, most freaky of all, perhaps. But mm. this this moment where the grandfather clock stops and Kinderman just like looks at it and waits for it to keep going and it doesn't. It's just Mm -hmm. so unnerving. It's so surreal. I think they do such a great job of keeping you as off balance as he is. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Big K follows these noises to ominously rattling and flickering lights that lead down a very spooky and dark hallway. There's also a reversal of the frightened holy statues that we've seen thus far, which is a ghastly grinning and knife-wielding man cloaked in black that could only be described as going Joker mode. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's really weird. Like... (laughs) I, I don't know. It's just, he's just, there's a statue of the Joker. <laughs> uh, it's, yeah. All right. The spell is broken, though, when he and the priest's assistant startle each other, and he returns shaken and with both men in need of a drink. Mm. He asks the father, do you believe in possession? And he responds, who cares? 
I've got enough to do worrying about the kids who need scholarships. Right. Which I thought was a very funny <laughs> retort. <laughs> but they do conclude that the McNeil case connects all the victims. Dyer was a friend of the McNeils. He was close with Karis. The first priest was one who gave Karis permission to investigate. And Kintry's mother was the linguistics expert who discovered the tape of Reagan was actually reversed English. So he finally has this connection. It does connect to the first movie in an interesting way. Uh, I think that this is a, a, a interesting like way to continue the story. I know that he talked about in many interviews about not knowing how to continue the story. And I think that having this sort of web that that drives towards uh, Kinderman being the last remaining member of the like original party sort of thing is yeah. just a really effective way to do it. Right. Yeah, it's Pazuzu. I don't know if that's officially stated in the novel, but it's pretty strongly implied that it's Pazuzu getting revenge right. for the events of of the first movie. Yeah. And Kinderman is directed towards a young priest who performed an exorcism in the Philippines. Uh, his hair has turned white from the shock of it. Is it true? Kinderman asks. Does it matter? Asks the priest. <laughs> and that is Father Morning, who we see find a bird that was moments ago chirping happily, now dead. The crucifix on his wall falls and starts to cry blood as his shoes echo loudly and wind starts to howl. And he says, folks, it's exorcism time. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is obviously stuff that was added later on <laughs> because you know this this character is just on his own doing his own thing and uh he just sort of feels this call that it's not even like uh kinderman seeks him out really which would have made more sense but probably wasn't feasible <laughs> given the production constraints right so morning just sort of finds his own way there and uh that's you know one of the less satisfying aspects of this movie uh but I don't think it, it obviously I don't think it ruins it and I, I think the ending still works and the second half of the movie still works but it is it is strange I'll say that yeah I do think it works as well you know I think that I honestly think that the first time that I watched this I had no like idea of the reshoots and I oh was no just me like, neither yeah okay fine this guy feels the call I get it right you feel it strongly enough you have experience with exorcisms all right let's go <laughs> But at the police station, the fingerprints indicate that Miss Clelia was the murderer. Surely impossible based on her condition and the strength needed to operate the shears. So Kinderman presses her. Why did you touch the jars? And was there anyone else in the room? This is when we cut away to, as I mentioned earlier, one of the funniest things that I have seen in, in a very long time, which is they cut to Scott Wilson as the doctor rehearsing his little speech. And he says, oh, by God, the way, yeah. that patient you looked in on, the police brought him here 15 years ago with complete amnesia and wandering the canals before worsening to catatonia. And he's, you know, practicing this in different tones before. In the middle of the speech, he glances at the speech in his desk while dramatically pausing and shifting. For there to just be this, like, screwball humor in the middle of Faith's nadir. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's, it's really goofy, but... And I think the first time I saw this, I, maybe I just wasn't paying enough attention, but I didn't really understand why this was happening. Or, yeah. But it, it becomes pretty clear later on why this is. And it's because, you know, the Gemini killer has sort of browbeaten or threatened this doctor into bringing Kinderman to him. And so he's written out this whole speech as a way of like luring him in. Right, uh, right. And you don't know that until later. So you're just like, what is this guy doing? Like, is this guy just like, he's, why is it? It's like he's rehearsing for his role in this movie. 
Yeah. So he, he also reveals that the Gemini killer has been improving suddenly and getting violent. Uh, or actually, he says the patient has been improving and getting violent. He does not refer to him as the Gemini killer just yet. Uh, he says the isolation is new, as is some electroshock therapy that he's been receiving. And this is when he confirms that it is the Gemini killer, which is double fucked up because you think that it's going to be about it being Karis. Like, you think that's going to be the reveal. Right. Kinderman has a dizzy spell, ostensibly from working too hard and being an old man who's running around trying to catch a killer. <laughs> but he has to push ever onward, and he goes into the cell 11, where Patient X looks up and says, it's a wonderful life. <laughs> it's also a wonderful shot. His eyes are focused on, and their brown has become almost completely consumed by a ring of green in his pupils. We also see the gulf between these two men, both bathed in light from the windows as they sit across from each other. Just looks fantastic. Oh, it's so good. Patient X taunts him, first about the lack of medical records for Karis, and then with insider knowledge of the Gemini's original victims. I really like this scene, such a departure from one of our emotional touchstones of the original one. You know, he's the relatably melancholic source of hope to be found in The Exorcist. And for him to have become this villain and to, I think, do it pretty effectively is really an awesome swap. Yeah, I mean, I think it it works. I know this wasn't in the original concept or the original shooting for right. the movie. But I mean, I, I think it, it works and he doesn't, you know, he doesn't get a ton of screen time because Brad Dourif takes over pretty quickly. Yeah. No, I mean, it's good. It's, it's shocking. It does, I think, do the job of tying this to the first movie much more effectively having, you know, the same actor. Right. There. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I understand the, I, the appeal of wanting to, shift it away from the first one especially because it has sort of this albatross of reputation that it, that it brings with it but i also like the first movie and i am happy to right. have like a connection to it <laughs> so so i also think it works and i'm happy to have it patient x also says that these new murders are off his beaten path of randomness because they're settling a score for a friend over there. He does roar in pain at the nearness of the forbidden nature of what he's discussing, though. He says he can't talk about it too directly. In a fit of rage at Kinderman's insistence of the Gemini's death, though, he transforms into his true form, Brad freaking Dourif. My apologies to Jason Miller, who was a handsome man in his own right, but upgrade. <laughs> Kinderman can't see it, though, and the Gemini says it's because he doesn't look with the eyes of faith. I thought that was a really interesting moment. Yeah. Tell them I'm the Gemini or I'll punish you. And he insinuates that he's going to kill Kinderman's daughter. Again, bringing that K aspect into it. This is also where he lists Titus Andronicus as one of his favorite plays, saying it's sweet. Titus Andronicus, famously Shakespeare's first tragedy, uh, also mm -hmm. famous for its graphic cyclical violence. So right. pretty far from sweet unless you're the Gemini killer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Brad does really get to go off, though. It rocks. This is another one where oh, I can just sit and great. recite the speech, right? Because every- Yeah, no, it's it's great. Every line is good. His delivery is even better. And it gets under Kinderman's skin really effectively. And he hits him. Mm-hmm. And he, there's a little blood leaking from his nose. And it mixes with the tears that the Gemini killer is shedding at all times. Another really interesting choice to just have, like, tears down one cheek every time he's on screen, basically. I find it to be a really fascinating- depiction I, I again there's not really any explanation for it but it does enough to sort of keep you thinking and and make you wonder like what the purpose of that is from a character standpoint as well as a movie watching standpoint yeah yeah it's almost like not even noticeable at first and then you just kind of realize it's 
been happening the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's kind of eerie that way. Yeah, and the Gemini promises to liven things up for Kinderman before fading to sleep and visually becoming Karis again. The nurse from before treats Kinderman's hand, and he pushes her on mentioning that the prisoner had passed out multiple times, each time right before a killing, and each time Mm -hmm. his physical vitals slow way down, but his brain activity accelerates. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And as he leaves, she reveals one more thing. That twice the man has spoken in a different voice, a kind and emotional voice that begged, quote, save your servant, and more direly begged, kill it. That's not what you want to hear. (laughs) (laughs) Upon further investigation, though, Kinderman finds that phrase again in the Roman ritual of exorcism. And he also finds a description of Legion in the Bible that calls to mind what he said in the cell. And there's this really, I mean, we move to this amazing scene, probably the most iconic scene of... The Exorcist 3, where oh my God, yeah. uh, back at the hospital, night nurse Amy Keating, another K, is creeped out. And then after we've gone through the feeling of it being a false alarm, gets freaking murdered so hard. <laughs> it's just, it's like a like split second. And again, you don't see it happen. You, it's just, you're looking down a hallway and like, that's pretty much the entire scene there's some cuts into the patient's room when she goes to check on it, but it's just this long series of long shots down this hallway. And you just see this shrouded figure just run past, just run past the the gap in the hallway that we can see down holding these shears. And then it cuts and it's, yeah, I mean, it's definitely the most well-known image from this movie. And I think there's good reason for that. It's really, really, really upsetting <laughs> and and freaky, considering you don't see any, you know, you don't see the shears cut her head off. You don't see when it happens, really. Uh, it's just incredibly what technically well done. Yeah, pure atmosphere. I love that the killer comes from the place that she just came from, which makes it especially freaky. Right. I also think Tracy Thorne, who plays the nurse, does a really good job. She talked in behind the scenes stuff about wanting to play the character a little smarter than your typical quote, don't go in the room, girl. Right. You do see that. Like, she considers, oh, am I in a horror movie? And then, like, dismisses her fear. (laughs) Really great. And as you mentioned, yes, this lockdown wide shots for this scene is incredible. Really lets you take in the space as people move around. The cops arrive. They get called away. She's checking doors. It's great. It's active and static in this incredible union. Not much planning for this scene, which was surprising based on the snappy timing of it. They said that Fisher, the DP, was resistant, but Blatty was determined that this scene would happen. Mm. And that's why we got Blatty on the directing, baby. (laughs) God, so glad. So gladdy, even. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) There's also a quick transition to the crime scene, which is very cool. And we discover that she was hollowed out and stuffed full of rosaries. Yeesh. Right. Well, he said he was going to liven it up for him. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Then on top of this, the nervous doctor has also died. Suicide confirmed by the Gemini. I was also thinking, is he the body that the Gemini used like he did with the old lady going into the confessional? Because the figure we see is shrouded, as you say, and I get the impression that the brain activity increase is him explicitly controlling another body. You know, the Gemini says, he helped me, but doesn't specify the extent. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if he's already 
Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, who is that? The shrouded person? Yeah, could be the doc. I'm I'm putting it out there. That's him. <laughs> I'm saying it. <laughs> so Kinderman goes to talk with the Gemini again, who gloats about the glorious revenge that he's helping to execute for quote the master using the body of a saintly priest who expelled Pazuzu to horrify all who might look to religion for respite, while also specifically horrifying Father Karis, who must watch the whole thing helplessly. Really amazing moment where he giggles thinking about taking over the corpse and then scaring the priest that was tending to the body by clambering out of the coffin with great difficulty. God, yeah. It's the smiles that keep us going, don't you think, he asks. The giggles and bits of good cheer. This is also, there's like three or four incredible monologues in this movie. And yeah. This is one of them. It's uh, just Dorif getting to go full on a creepazoid, uh, full on just like, manically enjoying just being a real freak and monster <laughs> and it's it's excellent that's right incidentally i can help your disbelief he he the incidentally <laughs> i noticed he uses that the phrase incidentally like five or six times mm-hmm. in this movie he says it a lot uh interesting. and it's just yeah i didn't clock that that's a really interesting recurring thing huh how about that the Gemini, uh, you know, this, his threats and expositions are concluded, and he falls asleep. But this gives Karis the opportunity to beg, Bill, help me. So we know mm. he's in there. Kinderman puts together the fact that this guy possesses people, and he goes looking for Clelia, who is crawling around on the goddamn ceiling. And I do not mean that as a euphemism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is, it's a really strange choice. Yeah. It's a really strange shot. <laughs> but... It's yeah, it's almost kind of amusing. It's 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 weird. Yeah. Somebody call Lionel Richie. We got a hit follow up for him. <laughs> Something else that I found intriguing in another sort of tinfoil way. This movie is full of them is that Clelia, they pronounce it homophonically to K, but it's not quite a K. Mm. And so you wonder like did that lead him to target her but not for death because right. it wasn't quite yeah. right? I don't know, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> he discovers not this, however, but the body of a nurse, stripped of her uniform, which is being used for an escape simultaneously. This is an especially opportune moment for it, because Kinderman thinks the Gemini is targeting a recently admitted child, Jack Corner, with a K, but it was just Nurse Allerton bringing in some toys, not trying to attack mm-hmm. him. This is sort of the culmination you know, of her fake just out. <laughs> silently bringing in some toys at night, <laughs> as you do. That lady is a fucking weirdo. <laughs> yeah, no, she's, yeah. Creepazoid. Kinderman realizes it wasn't Jack, but his own daughter Julie being targeted, and he rushes the hell out of there after he can't get in contact with his wife. I really like the sound in this chase sequence as well. It kind of alternates between sirens and general sounds you'd expect, and then over to the mm. nurse in the quote nurse in the taxi with the dr- deep droning chant and growls, and it just keeps going back. Just awesome sound design in this movie as well. Mm-hmm. When Kinderman gets home, though, he's surprised to find his daughter at the door, and everyone is fine, except the nurse fainted and now wants help herself. And you you say, oh, this is just a threat by the Gemini, you assume. Right, right. Until truly it makes an ass out of you and me, because he just wanted <laughs> Kinderman to see it. Mm-hmm. Wow. And it's very close, yeah, like with the, you know, the Gemini pulls the shears yeah. on his daughter, and the way that it's shot, it almost looks like he gets her. Mm-hmm. But it's like just barely not. Yeah. Yeah. Freaky. It is freaky. And he turns to Kinderman himself and things are looking bad for him. But suddenly he's interrupted 
the priest with the shocked white hair, as we said, appropriately named Morning, as he brings hope mm. to banish the dark with his arrival, is there to confront the demon, who is surprisingly chill about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's some more great monologuing from that demon, though, and the fact that morning is silent except for the prayer is fun. I also like you get the callback that the temperature has dropped, you see their breath there, you know, that's that's one of the hallmarks, you gotta have that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The cell turns to flame and snakes, and Father Morning combats it, but the demon has had enough, and he explodes the damn book into flames, shocking enough, and then blasts the priest back so hard his whole damn smock comes off as he's stuck to the ceiling. Mm, oh my god yeah this part oh the resisting and like peeling his own flesh off as he like leans forward is so nasty and you know you talked about not remembering the carp thing i did not remember this being in the movie i don't i I didn't remember this either and this is it's great effects work too i mean when his skin pulls away and you like i feel like his skull is pulling away and like you can see his brain (laughs) it's it's a lot. Yeah, it's, uh, there's muscle. It's wet. It's wet. Yeah, it's, it, it almost reminded me of Hellraiser. Yes. The, Frank. the effects work in that movie. For sure. Yeah. Kinderman arrives again and goes, hey, why are the lights flickering and where's the nurse? <laughs> so he approaches cell 11 and it opens and inside the bloody aftermath shocks him and the demon threatens Julie once more. Pray for me, Damien, Kinderman says as he aims his gun. You're free. And in the first cut, this is actually where it ends. He shoots patient right, X. yeah. <laughs> he just shoots him. He executes him. And honestly, as much as I love the monologue that Kinderman gets to deliver uh, after this, I think it would have worked yes. to end the movie here. It might have worked more effectively because, and you know, and not had the whole exorcism bit at all. Because, yeah, it, it does feel a little bit forced. Uh, there is some cool effect stuff you know, with the floor dropping out and everything. But yeah, yeah, it's more grounded. I I mean, I still think it works as is. But yeah, this is where it was supposed to end. Yeah, pretty good jumping off point, I think. It would have been fine. Yeah, I do like the exorcism. It is clear that it is sort of a commercial interest thing. (laughs) We enter the reshoot section of the movie. But it is good. And it's kind of impressive that it is as good as it is because they have very long hours. It's a very difficult shoot. It's a lot of special effects that weren't really functioning as needed. People were unrehearsed. Honestly, the biggest proof for God that Blatty put on screen is the fact that it does work as well as it does. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. The demon stops him, though, with another blast of power and trapped against the wall. Kinderman pleads for God's help. Have I helped your unbelief? Sneers the demons. Kinderman lists all the things he believes in you, son of a bitch! Mm -hmm. I believe in you! And suddenly, it's thunderstorming in the cell so hard it creates a pit to hell, with damned souls surrounding the corpse of Thomas Kittner, hitherto only described, not seen, and it is indeed very grim to look upon. Yeah, god, this is horrifying. Yeah. Then it becomes Karis, who pleads, oh, Bill, and Kinderman screams, why, god?! Save your prayers. God is not with us here. Get ready to die. But suddenly, morning rises again, gripping the crucifix that he dropped there in the lone patch of light, and he entreats Damien to fight. This push is enough for Karis to wrest control away. Temporarily, it's true, but long enough to beg Bill to shoot him and Bill to comply. And finally, Patient X is no more. The sun hangs in the sky, a deep red orange, and a sweeter song, Gloria, rings out as the priests at the college look out 
and see Kinderman and the one actually helpful associate of his visiting Karis's grave before the credits roll with the death year indicating his original death and not the death right. of patient X in that sort of yeah. redemptive moment. Really great, really great ending. I think it's it's nice and sort of melancholic again in a way that I think the first one does as well. Mm-hmm. It's just good. It's good stuff. Great. Fantastic. Yeah. And now, Merritt, we've reached the part of the episode where we sum up why it's not just a good horror movie, but is in fact the best horror movie ever made. And I'm going to let you start. <laughs> So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff we've already talked about, right? I mean, there's just incredible, iconic shots in this movie. The sense of foreboding, of dread, the stakes of supernatural evil versus, you know, humanity and and goodness. The characterization giving us something to grasp onto and to feel invested in. You know, I think ultimately why this is, for me the greatest horror movie is just the contrast that it makes between the brutal, almost like inconceivable evils uh, that exist in the world. And in this case, the literal devils and demons that, that can enact evil in the world, the way that it contrasts that with just the everyday kindnesses and companionship and love that exists between people the for me the the reason that this movie works is because the character of kinderman is like yes he he is worn down but he isn't hard bitten he's still open to the world and the relationship between him and dyer is just such a perfect counterpoint to the grueling horrors that it throws at us just that tension for me or not tension so much as as balance of like, yes, there are truly horrible, horrific things in this world. There is also succor. There's also kindness and there's also companionship. And I love a depressing horror movie. I love a relentlessly grim horror movie. Uh, Those can be great, but the way that this movie tries to, to push a little further than that, and to show that like that isn't it that isn't the whole extent of everything everything is not gray and bloody and awful forever there are things that are valuable and good and joyous in the world even if they're small and even if they're few and far between they're there and that to me is is why i think maybe you could argue that the exorcist is a better movie overall i would say the exorcist 3 is a better horror movie than the original. Absolutely. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because it is so blatty. Like it's so personal. It feels like someone really pouring their heart and soul into a movie that is so effective. And it really makes you take it seriously in a way that I think more corporately produced stuff does not get from, from Mm. audiences. It is fun to contemplate. We talked about how many things that I was still here sitting like, this could be anything. It could be a dozen different pads, but it's fun to think about. It's also thematically dense, right? It has actual meat to the themes of it. It's not just this sort of shallow cast off thing. Then on top of it, it's actually fucking scary, which is huge. 
And for it to not only be scary, but to have that comedy woven throughout by the deft hand of a master, it's it's so impressively done. And it prevents this movie from feeling like too much, I think. Because it is very grim, and I think it would be very easy for this to feel oppressive. But the bits of, of laughter do give you an out almost. They do give you a way to, to stay attached to the movie and to not feel like it is going to only be dour. And I think that that does have a little bit to do with the religious bent of the movie as well. Because Blatty, mm-hmm. thinking that there is a happy ending possibility for us, is what leads him to put that happy ending in the movie and to give us that sort of exit and dismount that is, yes, bitter, but bittersweet. And the performances are just out of this world. George C. Scott, unreal. Brad Dorif, unreal. It's an incredible movie. It's the best horror movie ever made. What else is there to say about it? Check it out if you haven't seen it. If you thought that there could only be one exorcist. Folks, you got to see this one. Absolutely. Merritt, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. This was so much fun. Please tell the people where they can check you out, where they can order your book, all that stuff. Yeah, first of all, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. It was a great excuse to revisit one of my favorite movies, if not my favorite movie. I'm on Instagram and Blue Sky. On Instagram, I'm Merritt K9. On uh, on Blue Sky, I'm uh, MerrittK.com. And, you know, I have a a website, otherstrangeness.com, where you can find out all my writing and and other stuff is there. And uh, my book, Land Party, uh, which you mentioned at the top, is out, you know, today. And you can order it. I mean, there's been some confusion because we did a crowdfunding campaign and people have been messaging me saying, oh, I missed out. Are you doing another run? The answer is yes. I mean, we uh, did the crowdfunding campaign and it's now out for retail. So you Hell can yeah. buy it. The 30th, at, right? Uh, it should be on the 30th. Yeah, I think it might be a bit sooner than that in the UK yeah. because the publisher is in the UK. Mm. Yeah, so you can get that at your local bookstore, which is always the best way to get books or you know, if that's not possible for you. It is on Amazon. It should be on other online retailers. And uh, yeah, it's a really fun book. It's a coffee table book of photos of land parties and stories from that era. And I had a lot of fun putting it together. And a lot of people sent me incredible photos uh, that we we used uh, from the 90s and 2000s. And uh, people have been really enjoying it so far. So if you're into that era of technology and, and games and, and culture, you'll probably like it. Yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to checking it out. Uh, as I said, it's it's much more than just about the land parties. It is a time capsule of the sort of entire era. You see, you get to look at all the clothing and all the wallpapers and stuff. What people are, you know, sitting on the couches. It's it, even just the preview stuff that I saw looked really incredible. I am looking forward to it for sure. On top of that, Merritt mentioned her regular writing on the website. Definitely want to encourage people to check that out as well. If you're interested in The Exorcist 3 and its sort of exploration of the afterlife, the recent story Connections is really cool and explores the possibility of an afterlife with finite space, which I really, really enjoyed. So people should definitely go and check that out as well as Land Party. As far as my plugs, check me out on Blue Sky at Little Horror PHL, Instagram, Little Horror PHL, if you want to check it out. 
Check out the Patreon if you're enjoying the show. All kinds of great bonus episodes on there. We're also going to be distributing some of the stuff from the 24-hour live stream that I did at the end of 2023 through the Patreon, so you'll be able to check that out. All kinds of great episodes in the back catalog. If you're into comedians, Hayes Davenport from the excellent Hollywood Handbook show was on to talk about Under the Silver Lake. Really, really awesome episode. Lots of great cartoonists like uh, Michael DeForge was just on Toronto's own. He is a really, really awesome artist, and we talked about The Happening uh, as the best horror movie ever made, which a lot of people might not believe that we were actually fans of it, but truly, we, <laughs> we, we both do really enjoy that movie. There's a lot to say about it, so check out The Happening episode. I think people will dig it. That's it. Thanks, everyone. Bye.